It's a real joy this evening, friends, to introduce to you a dear friend of mine, Dr. Clarence Carnahan, who is professor of psychiatry of the School of Medicine, Loma Linda University. Dr. Carnahan, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us this evening. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be asked to be on your program. Thank you. Uh, our topic tonight is emotional quiet. Is that right? Yes. We uh, thought that would have some relevance for uh, this type of meeting. Thank you. And how did you, doctor, become interested to the extent you are in, uh, in this phase of health? Yes. Uh, uh, maybe a little bit about the work I do. My main clinical work at the university is involved with seeing people uh, on the medical and surgical services of the hospital, people who have bona fide physical illnesses. But uh, it is felt that perhaps stress or tension has something to do either with initiating the illness or maintaining it or complicating it. Uh -huh. So uh, I'm frequently called in to see these people. And so these are people, for the most part, who have done very well, idealistic, try hard, work hard, but they haven't learned how to quiet this response oh, down. Yes. So I felt that there was a great need to teach people this and for them to uh, add this to the, the uh, other skills that they already knew. Oh, yes. Well, that's uh, very interesting. And uh, by the way, I think the first time that I was introduced to you as a letter you wrote me. Isn't that right? I had, uh, for a long time, been rather disillusioned with the aspect of uh, looking at problems and hoping that uh, digging around in problems became the uh, solution to problems. Uh, I couldn't quite buy that. When uh, I was introduced to your healing lab tapes and saw that you had a positive approach to problem. I felt these were useful to a number of patients that I saw. I've used them some in my work for selected patients. And I've been uh, impressed with the need for a solution-centered approach, whether this be in religion or in uh, my work in working with people with physical and emotional problems. That's very interesting. Uh, that doesn't seem to fit uh, a lot of uh, these uh, philosophy of men, uh, of your peers, let me say, in the world. It's refreshing to uh, meet an individual who has this, what I would call a Bible-centered philosophy. So you must be a Bible-believing Christian also. Well, I think so. I very much prize the uh, schooling I've had and my uh, Sabbath school teachers, my teachers in school as I've gone through uh, Christian schools, and uh, it, I think, is a wonderful basis for uh, then believing and uh, reaching solutions. I only regret that too many times it, the negative part of it has been presented. Isn't it true? Uh, particularly in uh, some phases of religion, which I'm acquainted, uh, I've heard a lot of people talk, time of trouble, time of trouble, time of trouble, until they be became troublemakers, almost. Uh, Plagues, plagues, <laughs> well, anyhow, we don't have to deal with the plagues tonight, do we? <laughs> so I think the same 
that same approach can be applied to illness and uh, feeling bad. So this be uh, physical or emotional or a combination of the two. Um, hopefully we can learn to look beyond this and uh, feel as well as think hopeful things. So that sounds just like what I'm teaching too, from a biblical. I learned standpoint. some of it from you. Well, thank you. That's that's encouraging. Also, uh, I think it was two years ago that we were hoping that we might have the privilege of having you with us in one of these uh, uh, stop worrying and begin living uh, seminars. It certainly is a joy. By the way, now when when you start with a patient, let's say here's a patient that's is, has a stress situation, uh, how would you start uh, with this individual uh, and how would you carry on uh, to get this person out of the stress into uh, a more peaceful condition? Let me uh, say what I first believe in. I believe in activity and I believe in doing things and I believe in a, a positive active approach to living. Uh, I think one of the curses of our present generation is uh, what I'll call the TV passive approach to life, where uh -huh. people sit and they expect to be, to be entertained by others or have someone bring them something. Uh, this applies to uh, their uh, hopes for doctors, too. You know, they're supposed to go to the doctor, and the doctor is going to make them well, either through a prescription or, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or telling them something magical. So, anyway, I. I start with an active approach. I think people have to take personal responsibility for their own health and for their own well-being. Uh -huh. That doesn't uh -huh. mean they can't have help from others, but they have to learn to take some personal responsibility for it. I stress activity. Uh -huh. In other words, it's pretty hard to rest unless a man has something That's to rest right. from, isn't it? If people can be active and have the body in good condition, then they're more likely to be able to uh, purposefully turn it down and rest it efficiently also. What would be some of the areas in which you would recommend activity before we get into the restful phase? Well, if I see people are doing sedentary type of work, the type of work where there's a lot of worry involved, you know, people do desk jobs or uh, my fellow physicians, uh, uh, ministers, uh, people who have a lot of burdens, but uh, not much physical work connected with uh, the way they uh, earn their livelihood and the way they spend their time, I firmly recommend an active exercise program. Like what, though? Well, I, I personally believe in jogging and do it, practice it. That's not for everyone. There's no better exercise than walking. I walk, uh, I try to walk from one to five miles a day. Great. And uh, some people uh, swim, ride bikes. Uh, some people may rather saw or chop wood or dig holes or something. But it needs to be some kind of structured exercise and uh, programmed over a period of time and done regularly. Uh -huh. Now, after they've gotten this exercise, as you say, then you see if I have this straight. Then you go into the second phase of, uh, of the relaxation program. Is that right? Am I right? Right. Then they can learn to do something like relaxation, and it has been called by numerous uh, words, but I've uh, chosen the word quietness, the quiet response. Mm -hmm. Other people have used that word too. It seems to have special meaning. 
uh, as opposed to the tumult and the stress and the tension that we find ourselves in so often. Would uh, would uh, just a quiet meditation uh, fit it? I don't mean the uh, TM type, but uh, after a man's exercise, uh, would you say? Uh, I think this can be done in many different ways. I've gotten into it through uh, teaching people through biofeedback, for instance, a quiet response by monitoring their their body responses, that say the muscle tightness, and showing them on a dial uh, or with a tone exactly how tense they are and teaching them to quiet that down. That's not the only way it can be done, though. Uh, I think there's a real place here for Christian meditation also, where people can select uh, a quiet passage, a passage that has meaning, hope, uh, a positive uh, approach, and allow them to uh, initiate this quiet response oh, yes. also. Scriptural promises then uh, could could fit I, into the program. I like that. Uh -huh. Now, uh, what other suggestion would you have uh, beside now they exercise and then they begin to relax, quiet meditation or scriptural reading or something of that type. Uh, what other suggestion would you have uh, to aid them in relaxing. Uh, I also make use of uh, creative imagery. Oh, is that right? Like what? Well, uh, I've had a lot of very pleasant experiences in the past. Right, I have too. <laughs> and uh, I think it's very helpful at times to relive those. When we feel that you know things have gone badly and things are negative and people may be hard to get along with, we can stop and recall some of the pleasant feelings when things were rather quiet and pleasant within us too and be able to quiet some of that stress response. Now if I were a patient coming to you and I began to tell you about all the trouble I've had, uh, you would, uh, how would you try to quench that? Uh, just I, I would listen first to, to what's wrong. Uh -huh. I want to find out what's wrong. Mm -hmm. But then I want to see if we can develop a way to help some things be right also. And you actually suggest to them, uh, are there pleasant things in your life? Is that it? Uh, well, that this, you could live over and... Uh, yes, I, I will say, uh, uh, let's see if we can remember some things that were pleasant so that when pressure builds up to a certain degree that you can then invoke this other scene, this image in your mind, to have your body respond to it, and then quietness can come in to offset the stress response. I see. Well, you're doing in the area of psychiatry exactly what we're doing in the area of the spiritual. We're constantly doing that. Uh, perhaps there's not as much difference as we used to think. <laughs> Praise the good Lord for that. <laughs> yes. Yes, we constantly say to people, well, uh, live over the, the solutions and the solutions that God promises. Yes. And... Uh, if we can get them to, to studying the promises of God and saying, look, God promises you this. Why don't you take hold of it? It sounds like, sounds like we're almost a team, Doctor, <laughs> in philosophy. Should be. Right. Should be that way. All right, now there's the exercise. Then there is the, uh, the uh, meditation, the scripture study to cause them to relax. Then, then to help them to recall pleasant experiences in their past life. 
Uh, what beyond this now would you uh, recommend that they would, uh, that your patients would do? Of course, you've mentioned this dial that they watch. By the way, regarding this biofeedback, as they watch this dial, what may, what do you suggest that they think about? Is it what they might think about and see the effect of that on the dial? Well, yes, I want them to make some uh, connection between what they see happening that's very objective, it's right there for both of us to see, and they, they then can uh, determine the difference in the feeling level from when there's high tension to when there's low tension, so that when they later spot higher tension, they can reverse it. Now, if they watch this dial, and they saw the, uh, I don't know anything about it, but the, the hand going up, let's say. Yeah. Uh, what would you then say to them? Think of the pleasant thing, is that it? Or would you? Oh, I want them, perhaps. But at that point, I would just say, remember what you had learned before. You were able to turn that down before. Turn it down now. Oh, is that right? And how would they turn it down before? By uh... They learned the skill. See, I can't explain to you how I move my finger here. Uh, no. <laughs> all I know is that I've been doing it all my life, and right. I just will to do it, and it happens. I see. So if people can build skills into their lives that involve uh, you know, the, the, the tension or reduction of tension, dealing with the emotional level, then this becomes a skill that they can use at times. Are you talking about will, will to be quiet? Well, or? I'm talking about learning a, a skill that involves dealing with the emotional level as well as skills that involve uh, dealing, say, with what we call the motor skills of the body, using muscles. Now, when we speak of a skill and dealing with the emotional level, uh, I might not know how to use this skill. How would you start me into this skill? Uh, just what we've already covered? That's what we've already covered. I see. That's how you'd start. Uh, the thing that I'm more and more impressed in is one's belief system, too. Tell us about Well, that. we're reminded over television and other things that, you know, we need pills or something like that in order to be tranquil or in order to sleep or something. Uh, I think this is uh, the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. I think people can learn, you know, personal skills in doing this. Mm -hmm. And it can be a combination of of a physical approach, spiritual approach, and an emotional approach. Now, the physical approach would be exercise. Exercise. The spiritual approach would be uh, would be what promises. we studied. Promises. Promises and studying the Bible, and and the mental approach would creative, be creative imagery. Creative imagery, the pleasant things in their life, and willing to let go of something. Right. Let go of the negative. Do they also? Are they also encouraged? To look at that to say. I'm becoming peaceful now. Uh, does that enter it anyway? I, I don't like to use uh, suggestion as such. Uh, or at least uh, I try to minimize uh, suggestion. I like to have them have an actual experience that they can then fall back on to recreate. Like when they looked at, uh, when they meditated on a pleasant experience of their life, this dial goes down. Down. I that see. they can recreate. I see. So from there, they can take off and keep uh, improving. Improving, right? Uh, Dr. Carnahan, if you were to, if you were to make say five, six, eight suggestions now in summarizing to our viewing audience uh, to help them to attain to more emotional mm -hmm. quiet, uh, how would you summarize them? 
I don't think that emotional health can be separated from physical health, first of all. Um, I would start with the uh, being a physician here. Uh, let me start with the uh, seven principles that Dr. Breslow at UCLA has laid down in physical oh. health. Oh. Uh, number one, he says, eat breakfast. Number two, he says, eat regularly. Number three, eat moderately. Uh -huh. Number four, avoid cigarettes. Uh -huh. Number five, little or no alcohol. Mm -hmm. Number six, a regular exercise program. Number seven, seven or eight hours sleep per night. Uh -huh. That's a pretty good physical approach, isn't it? I think so reasonable, isn't and it? And I think you can find uh, uh, religious uh, uh, counterparts to that, too, to explain the rationale for it. So practical, isn't it? It's very practical. Anybody could understand that. My, you know, sometimes I talk to people and they, they go into such a big, great, grand vocabulary. I don't know what they're I understand now from you what you're talking about. This is tremendous. And then, uh, as, as you've already mentioned... Uh, then, then, yes, there are some people then that are seem to be trapped in habit patterns that may have been useful at one time of life or may have been uh, useful to work hard, try hard, and keep themselves uh, uh, highly aroused to meet emergencies, but they don't know how to get down from that. Mm -hmm. Then I try to teach uh, what we've already covered in right. terms of the emotional quieting. Uh -huh. Dr. Carnahan, I'm thrilled. You know, <laughs> when you think how uh, the principles of life are really very simple, aren't they? And here a psychiatrist, a professor of psychiatry, it's come right down to my level. Even I can understand what you're saying, and I'm sure if I can, that our viewers can too. And I want to thank you very, very much for being willing to come and be with us. It's a pleasure to be here and to learn from you too. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. And you know, we're talking about family squabbles and how to cure family squabbles. And we have eight special principles from the Word of God how family squabbles can be cured. And if you would like to take your pencil and paper now, and you can sit right here and on the table, you can be writing it out as I share it with you. And we have placed in each of your hands our little special pyramid that covers these uh, seven, these eight principles, and you'll be happy to know this special chart was also done by Nancy Troyer, I told you that they're people of many talents, and we deeply appreciate the fact that they've been willing to come clear across the continent to be with us for this five-day seminar. And now, the healing of family squabbles. Number one, one-track mind. You'll write this down if you like, or you can put a check opposite one here at the very apex of this uh, special chart that Nancy did. Number one, one-track mind. Someone says, what in the world does that have to do with a family squabble? It means this. It means that the human mind, by and large, is completely unable to negotiate some heavy problem and at the same time start negotiating another problem that's entirely foreign, you see. Let me give you an illustration of this one-track mind. Philippians 3.13, by the way, that's one thing I do. My wife and I are riding across the continent in the back seat of a car owned by a ministerial friend of ours. 
He and his wife were in the front seat, and we're traveling through, and this was decades ago. This is before the freeways and all the interstates and all of that, and we're passing through the heavy traffic of Denver. And right in the midst of this heavy traffic, and I'm telling you, friends, if you remember what it means to go through Denver in the heavy traffic, this man was really bending every energy of his mind to negotiate this traffic. And right in the midst of this traffic, with all of his mind being wrapped up in the traffic, his angel wife turned to him with a sweet little smile and a very kindly voice, and she posed a problem. Now, he was a minister, so he didn't like to have her pose the problem because he couldn't possibly take on a problem foreign to the problem he already had and was bending every energy of his mind to negotiate. So he didn't curse her. This is all he did. <clears throat> and I kind of tilted my face a little in one direction so I could capture the expression on her countenance. And to the best of my ability, this is what it said. She didn't say a word, but her countenance spoke volumes. It went something like this. Uh-huh. We have two coons in the back seat and a dog in the front seat. I want to tell you. Now, she was good. She was innocent. She was sweet. But she hadn't learned what I, for years and decades, had never learned either, and that is that the human mind cannot negotiate a, a problem and at the same time negotiate another problem that is entirely foreign to the first. Now, it means this. It means that through the day, we don't pick on each other. That's what it means. It's just that simple. It doesn't mean that through the day we say, why did you do that, honey? I, I, no, no. It means we, we don't have to henpick, and we don't have to rooster, rooster pick. We don't have to pick anybody through the day. We don't have to throw in problems through the day. That brings us to point number two, a time. There is a time when we can discuss these problems. And the text is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 and 11. And the, the first verse says, there's a season for everything. There's a time for everything. And the 11th verse says, everything is beautiful in its time. So there is a time when it's absolutely, actually beautiful to discuss what we need to discuss. But if it's ill-timed, it's horrible. It is as horrible as... <clears throat> you see. So it doesn't have to be horrible. So if you'd like to check down the second one, a time. There's a time for everything. And if we will discuss what we need to discuss at the proper time, it's what? It's beautiful. Will you say it with me? It is beautiful. And it says everything is beautiful in its season together. Everything is beautiful in its season. So the thing that's horrendous out of season is beautiful in its season. Number three, sitting down, sitting down. And as I present number three, I'm going to sit down. So to, so to practice uh, what I'm presenting, a time to sit down. <clears throat> uh, I uh, wonder if my sweet wife would come up and sit with me a moment, and we are going to sit down just like husbands and wives should sit down and uh, because there's a text for the sitting down time. This is found in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 to 30. And uh, you'll pardon me a minute. I want to welcome my honey. 
I call her my pet coon. If you could get through this way, thank you. Thank you so much. My, I appreciate this. Should we sit down to discuss what we need to discuss? Thank you. You look so sweet because you are so sweet. She's a little bashful because she hadn't the slightest idea that I was going to invite her. And do you know, up until a moment ago, I didn't either. I just saw her in the audience. And, <laughs> and there's sort of a, a magnetic drawing as I looked at her. So now the husband and wife will sit down. Now this means they have prearranged a time when they will sit down to discuss what needs to be discussed. You see, going back to number one, the mind is one track. So we must not pose or inject problems through the day. We'll set a time when the mind can be drawn in, you see, from all the other problems. And you might be interested, friends, that my pet coon and I, we don't just sit down. We lie down. Let me explain. Let me explain. After we've had a full night of rest, we get our Bible, we get a spiritual book, and we read together, and we pray together. Just wait a minute, I'll get my Bible. <clears throat> and we take our Bible, and we take Bible-oriented books, and we actually take the first thing in the morning, sometimes as early as 5 o'clock in the morning, we take approximately one hour, right, honey? Approximately one hour, and during this hour, we're drinking in of the love of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, you see. Then after we take this hour, then we're still in bed. <laughs> we really read together and pray together in bed. There's no reason to get up and get dressed. Why do we do that? And there we are. And then after this hour of, of beautiful meditation, then we discuss what needs to be discussed. That's number three. Thank you so much. And then number four is this. <clears throat> when we discuss, and you'll notice it here on the, on the chart, we discuss solutions. And you know, somebody comes to me and they say, listen here, solutions? I thought we're to, to deal with these problems. That's how you deal with problems. <laughs> You deal with problems by discussing solutions. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it says, by beholding, we're changed in the same image. It means this. If we discuss problems, it arouses negative emotions, right? But if we discuss solutions, it draws out from the human system positive emotions. And you know, when, when the mind... When the mind is at ease, we can reason. Some time ago, people showed me two thermometers. One represented emotion and the other represented reason. When the thermometer of emotion goes up to 75%, reason goes down to 25%. When emotion goes up to 90%, reason goes down to 10%. So you see the importance of recognizing that we're not to pick on each other through the day, you see the importance of choosing a time when we sit down? And then you see the importance of discussing solutions, not problems. Now, that's number, that's number four. Number five is this. 
And you'll see this and check it because uh, number four had a light. I like the way I like the way Nancy put a light there. You see, for the discussing of uh, for the sitting down time, she had two chairs. I like that. <laughs> In our case, it was one bed, <laughs> two chairs. Then for the discussion of solutions, she put a light. We're discussing the light, <clears throat> light on the subject. <clears throat> now, in preparation, number five, in preparation <clears throat> for, this, for this discussion, in preparation for discussing solutions, we want to have a solution to discuss. How can we get a solution to discuss? We claim a promise like James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So before my wife presents for the discussion what she does present, Maybe the day before, she can open her Bible to James 1.5. Dear Lord, you've promised to give me wisdom. I ask you to give me this wisdom so that when I discuss what needs to be discussed, I will discuss solutions. But I can't discuss solutions, dear Lord, unless you give me wisdom to know what a possible solution might be. So when we meet together then, she, instead of saying, Look, you've been doing this thing for 25 years. You never put your socks back where you find them. Your shoes are, I don't know where I'm going to find the shoes. She could say that, <laughs> for which I'm sorry. She doesn't say that. She said, honey, you know, I have a possible solution. And I say, for what? Then she merely identifies it. The shoes that happen to be under the chair when it might be better for them to be uh, in the closet, you see. <laughs> so we're discussing solutions. Now, as she prepares for this discussion, claiming a promise for solutions, she's very careful to say, Lord, I'm not going to act as though I had all the answers. Because if I'm going to discuss some mistake my husband has made, that itself would tend to have him put up his defenses. Now, if in addition to that, I act as though I had all the solutions, you have all the problems, what can I expect to meet but throwing up the hands in self-defense? So as she suggests the solution, we come to the next, the next very important principle. And you'll find it he is here with this nice face and the b deep humility. It's humility. It says, it says, I'm not sure I have the right solution. There might be a better one. Now, what does that do? That opens the gate to solution-centeredness without her taking the attitude that she is smarter, wiser, more intelligent than I. So it keeps me from feeling, wait, I've got to defend myself, you see. This might not be the, the best. You might have one that's better, you see. Then we come to point seven. You see, that's humility we just covered. Point seven is wait. Maybe, maybe the mate might say, if the mate hasn't been to this seminar, and the wife suggests this, the mate, mate might say, your solution, you're crazy. There's nothing to this at all. I've got one that's a lot better. And the solution that he suggests might be worse than, th than the problem. Now what are we going to do? Are we going to say, 
Your solution is not good. You know it isn't good. My solution is good. You know you ought to accept my solution. No, we say, uh, what would you think if maybe we would just put this on ice for a few days and we'll think it over and pray about it and maybe the Lord will come, help us to come up with a solution that, that is maybe not mine at all and perhaps not even yours. Maybe it will sort of compromise. And he said, okay, good enough. I'm glad you wised up so you realize that. <laughs> you see. <laughs> and, and we wait. Let them pour it on. And we wait. And we wait. Now, that's number seven. Number eight. Number eight. Actually belongs at the introduction of number one. <laughs> Why in the world did we put number eight when it should be, belong to number one? It is this. There are individuals who've tried this. Somebody's been to one of our seminars, let's say, <clears throat> and this person is thrilled with this new idea. Look, we don't have to pick on each other through the day. We don't have to inject any kind of a problem through the day. We can sit down quietly. Oh, this is tremendous. I'm persuaded. I'm sold on it. I'm converted to it, the mate said. But the, their spouse heard nothing about it. So as they began to say to the spouse, let's sit down now and discuss this, the spouse will say, sit down what? Nothing doing. And the spouse, why will the spouse say nothing doing? Because the spouse is imagining that when they sit down, he will, he will face the firing squad of words, of condemnation, of belittling from his mate, see? So we mustn't start with our mate the first or second or third or fifth or sixth sitting down time by pointing out a mistake of the mate. We'll first start by presenting mistakes that we are making. That puts the mate at ease. We may not even first say, let's sit down, you see. We may say something like this. Do you know, I want to apologize to you. This is James 5.16. Confess your faults one to another. Think of it. That's the Bible. Humble yourselves before God. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So to start with, the one who has learned of this and whose mate has not will start something like this. Honey, and, uh, and the speech is, is slowed down. The voice is moderated. Honey, I've got an apology to make. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me for picking on you through the day? I shouldn't do a thing like that. I should wait till our minds are at ease if we have something to discuss. And after we pick our mate up from the floor, you know, <laughs> the mate will, every time then that we say, could we chat again? You know what the mate will say? Yes, because I have some more apologies coming to me. <laughs> they like it. It's the law of association, you see. So for the first number of times, every time we say something to the mate along this line, you know, I wonder if you could give me a little counsel. And you know what the average spouse will say? <laughs> I'm just a, yes, sir. What is it? You see. And we take it. We ask God to give us grace to take it. Now, we can never take it unless we have followed Philippians 2, 5 and onward. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, 
but he made himself of no reputation. Now, just think a moment of what that means. So it'll help us to realize that we are not out of place when we humble ourselves. Now, Christ didn't sin, so he didn't have to say, forgive me. He didn't say, have to say, I apologize. But he, he, oh, he conformed to that principle in eternity. He comes down from the adoration of angels. He's a commander of heaven. He comes down to this world. He's born in a stable. He's cradled in a manger. He's born with the beasts. He dies with the criminals. And all through life, he's jeered from his early infancy. His boy friends and, and girlfriends say, here's a little boy without a daddy. That, that boy, Jesus, suffered untold misery and agony from his earliest days of consciousness until finally he was hurried from one judgment hall to another, abused, humiliated. You know, I've thought sometimes in my own mind, I've said, now, I'm going to face a situation where I, I know I'm going to be humiliated. And the devil said, you humiliated? I said, if my Lord Jesus, who was the commander of the heavenly hosts, was willing to come down to this planet, and he was willing to have people spit on him, abuse him, humiliate him, actually put his body, his back in shreds till the blood spurt out to endure that crown of thorns till the blood spurt out all around his, his, his forehead and his head. Am I going too far to be able to say, Lord, let this mind be in me, in me. Lord, you, Lord Jesus, were willing to do this in order to solve humanity's problems. Since you're willing to do this to solve humanity's problem, shouldn't I be willing to take a, a lot of buffeting? Shouldn't I be willing to say, I'm sorry? Shouldn't I be willing to say, forgive me? Shouldn't I be willing to say, I apologize, if that will solve a home problem? Jesus was willing to solve the problem of the world's filthiness and, and sanctimony and persecution and deviltry. All of it he passed through, not for a day, not for a year, but for 30 years and more, 33 years. Can't I say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. He said, I stand at your door and knock. If you hear my voice and will open the door, I'll come in. I'll sup with you. And then we say, for me to live is Christ. Yes. Though my mate may be 20 times as guilty as I am, Lord Jesus, when you're inside, you'll help me to say, Honey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, by the time we've done that several times, then as we sit down, our mate will then associate our sitting down with something that's pleasant, namely my humbling myself instead of my trying to humble my mate. Do you see the difference? There's a world of difference. No person wants to be before a tongue firing squad. But everybody loves to hear somebody say words of humility or take a humble stance. Uh, we were telling the other day, we were reading the other day of two wolves that were fighting. And one finally, one wolf realized that he was whipped. He knew that if he kept fighting, that he'd be weak and he'd expose his throat. That's what the wolves are working at. And he knew the other would cut his throat just like that and he'd be finished. So that wolf had enough instinct from our Father in heaven to immediately drop, just like he dropped dead, put his head right back and exposed his throat. And his antagonist was gentleman enough 
though he's a wolf. <laughs> he was gentleman enough to just, as he passed, he went, <laughs> didn't touch him. Even a wolf recognizes the humility of another wolf. So God says, he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So as we start this program, number eight, you see, before we, 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 before we collar our mate and say, now sit down, we have something to discuss. I just heard Pastor Toon tell us about eight steps in discussing. And one of the first ones is for you to sit down. And I'm going to set you, oh, no, 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 no. Will you forgive me? I'm so sorry for the mistakes I've made. Many of you have heard me tell of the story of my father. My father was a very nervous man. He had prepared for the ministry. Consequently, he picked up no, no occupation and no trade. As his family was growing, it dawned over him that traveling as ministers did in those days, he probably would lose control of his family and they would probably go in the wrong direction. They gave, they gave my father a ministerial license. It hung on the wall for years. But he said, no, I, I cannot accept the ministry. I want to stay with my children. I want to rear my children. By the way, out of his eight boys, five became ministers. Now notice, because father had no trade and he had to provide for eight boys, you can imagine how nervous he would get out there on the farm. He wasn't even a, really a good farmer. And with eight boys, you can imagine, we've seen father climbing the wall again and again. So daddy would get irritated at night as we'd have worship, for he had worship every night. He would never finish worship. We would never kneel in prayer unless if he had been irritated that day, he would turn to us. And I would notice that for seconds he wouldn't say a word. He was fighting the battle. Am I big enough man to apologize to my own children? Will they belittle me if I apologize? No. He sat there, and I would see Father had a facial paralysis years before, and when he was thinking earnestly, it would show up just a little, just a little. And when I saw that on Father's countenance, I knew that he was fighting a terrible battle, a battle of humility versus pride. Finally, he would say, Boys, I've done wrong today. I'm sorry. I was unkind. Or I lost my temper. Or he'd say, I was irritated today. Before we kneel in prayer, will you forgive me? You know what happened when Dad said that? To me, he was the most marvelous man in all this world. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I thought, my, isn't that wonderful? I felt like hugging him right then. But that wasn't the end. After Dad said, will you forgive me? All from the, the oldest brother down myself, who was a little tiny tot to begin with, we'd say yes. My older vo brother's voices that had changed, they'd say yes, yes. Come down to me, I'd say yes. Mother would say yes. The Holy Spirit came in to such an extent that then Mother, almost if she hadn't been irritated, she would think, well, maybe I've made some mistake. So mother would say, and me too. Yes, 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 yes. And then the Holy Spirit just saturated us. My oldest brother would say, and if I have done anything wrong today, will you forgive me? And the chorus of yeses came right down through the, 
right down from the oldest, and then it'd come to me, and I'd say, and me too. And the chorus of voices would say, yes. <laughs> and then we'd often sing this little chorus. There are angels hovering round. There are angels hovering round. There are angels, angels hovering round. I wonder if some of you would like to sing it with us. There are angels hovering round. There are angels hovering round. There are angels, angels hovering round. And they were. That house was full of angels. And I liked the second stanza. And it went like this. To carry the tidings home to the new Jerusalem. And then we'd all join. There are angels, angels hovering round. There's a third stanza to it. And I liked it very much because it represented the reason why Father could humble himself. It says, let him that heareth come. Oh, come, while yet there's room. You see, Father was listening to the Holy Spirit. He was listening to Jesus through his representative, Christ who humbled himself, you see, and became obedient unto death, the death of the cross, that he might save us. And the Holy Spirit was saying, if you hear, you may come. You may come and partake of my spirit of self-abnegation. There's no room in this world for big shots. Say, uh, Luciferism says, I will ascend. Christ said, I'll make myself of no reputation. So let him that heareth come. Oh, come while yet there's room. There are angels, angels hovering round. My, you're a good chorus. I love to hear that. Just once in all the days I was at home, Father was too big to apologize before we had our prayer night. Just once. And I want to tell you, he had hurt me that day. I'd done my best. I went back up to my bed at night, and I just turned to the wall, and I wept. I sobbed. In a moment, Daddy was coming up, put his arm around me, his face next to mine. He said, son, will you forgive me? He was the biggest man in all the world for their angels hovering around. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.